This episode of Z Prime on the Grid is presented by the NREL American Made Solar Prize. The American Made Solar Prize is a $3 million prize competition designed to energize U.S. solar manufacturing through a series of contests and the development of a diverse and powerful support network that leverages national laboratories, energy incubators, and other resources across the country. If you're interested in the upcoming round four, submissions are due October 8, 2020, and you can find all the information at herox.com slash solarprize round four. That's H-E-R-O-X dot com slash solar prize round and the number four. This is another episode of On the Grid by Z Prime. Love your energy. Hey everybody, welcome to Z Prime On the Grid. I'm Dylan Lockwood. Joining me as always from her new place in Denver is Aaron Hardick. Aaron, how's it going? I'm doing well today, Dylan. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. How's uh, how's Denver treating you? It's been great so far. I've spent a little bit of time outside, but not too much because there's some wildfires in the state similar to California. Well, not as many as there are in California, but it's been fun. Yeah, welcome to the West. And also today on the show, we have the Senior Sales Engineer Program Manager at FTC Solar, Catherine Beisner. Uh, Catherine, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. I am also in Colorado at the moment, although I live in Austin. I'm in Pagosa Springs. Nice. Tell me, tell me about Pagosa Springs. I, I've, I you don't know, know it. I have never been here before. Um, we have been seeing so much smoke uh, in Colorado. We were in Colorado Springs last week and uh, camping in the Spanish Peaks over the weekend, so just kind of getting out of the heat of Austin. But Pagosa Springs is got has got blue skies. It's a small town on the San Juan River, and there's hot springs like super sulfurous hot springs all along the river. And it's an adorable little town, and seems to be out of the smoke, so we're enjoying it. Glad to hear it. Uh, the smoke can be a real, real pain at times, so it's it's good to hear you're not not getting caught up in that. So. Uh, turning to sort of the work you do at FTC Solar and beyond, uh, what's something you've worked on recently or are working on currently that you're really excited about? Well, I am really excited about uh, working in utility scale trackers. I just joined FTC Solar. I'm about three months in, and uh, I'm just definitely still in the honeymoon period. I'm so excited because uh, I had no idea a few months ago how much innovation there is in the tracker space and how uh, critical it is to utility scale solar. And then I'm joined this company, FTC Solar is a startup and it's got an all-star team. So uh, a lot of the core executives and upper management all came from Sun Edison. And then many of them all worked together at Freescale Semiconductor prior to that. So it's a super experienced team, and many of them have worked together for decades. So they know each other very, very well, work together very well. But they're they're a new group of people to me. Um, but the company is just on an incredible growth trajectory, similar to utility scale solar and trackers in general. But we're expecting to do um, more megawatts in Q1 2021 than we did in all of 2020 and sold our first trackers about a year ago. So everything, the company was about 50 people at the end of 2019 and expected to be 140 
by the end of 2020. So it's like getting on a rocket ship and it's super exciting. Catherine, before we talk more about the growth of the solar tracker market, can you maybe just explain what a solar tracker is or what the technology is? Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, So trackers uh, are machines with with motors in them that you mount. It's like a long rail that would form the one row in the utility scale solar power plant. And the track, the solar panels are tracked attached to that beam, that long beam, and then a motor turns them from east to west as the sun goes across the sky every day. And uh, there's actually different kinds of trackers. Uh, so that's a single axis tracker. So it, it rotates on a single axis from east to west. And the ones at FTC Solar are called 2P, which means um, it holds two panels in portrait, which is, you can imagine these long rails coming out uh, to the side holding panels in portrait. Um, so there's a lot of panels uh, on those and the whole rows track from east to west. So not really applicable to rooftop at all, very much a utility scale technology. And I remember you uh, you, you told us leading into this that uh, the solar tracker market grew by 60% in 2019. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that happened? Well, uh, I think there's a lot of reasons. It's really interesting because trackers are nothing new. Um, originally, they didn't have two panels. They would just have a single panel, like a long row of a single panel instead of two. But they've been around for a long time. Um, but what's happened was the costs have come down. So continuous innovation to drive down those costs and then the reliability and ease of installation have increased. So initially, um, although they have always provided uh, additional yield as far as megawatts, um, they came with a higher cost, obviously more steel, and then this motor, you know, more moving parts, more things that could break, more complexity in the installation and reliability. So I think what's happened is that costs have come down, reliability and ease of installation have improved to the point where it actually makes sense to, instead of using fixed tilt, which is basically you place the panels just in a fixed uh, rack uh, at the most optimal angle and they just sit there unmoving, um, which is much simpler and much cheaper, but the cost of the trackers have come down now, the reliability is there and the ease of installation that it's worth it uh, to get that extra yield. Uh, the other thing is there's been a lot of innovation in the algorithms around the tracking. It's not as simple as just following the sun. There's a lot of uh, innovation and complexity there. And, um, you know, as we are running out of the big flat squares of desert, you know, the, the land where you put these solar power plants, um, in order to maximize the value of that land and that interconnection to the grid, uh, it's it's desirable to get as many watts out of that land as you possibly can, and trackers allow you to do that. Um, And then when they're combined with bifacial panels, which are solar panels that can generate electricity from the backside, from light hitting the backside of them, trackers and bifacial together are really symbiotic relationship in a way that bifacial is not in a fixed tilt situation. So um, bifacial has been 
coming on strong in the solar market, and that has given trackers a boost. And then finally, I would just say that the tracker market is growing just like the solar market. Like solar is really taking off for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's cost competitive, but also many states and utilities and jurisdictions have renewable energy mandates or goals that they are trying to reach. So um, that's helping lift the tracker market as well. I just want to go back to something you said real quick uh, that uh, I was kind of interested in. Um, you said that um, the uh, that they're changing algorithms so that it's not just pointing directly at the sun at all times. What, uh, without getting too technical, getting too technical on this show, uh, what's some of the, what are some of the changes that are making them more efficient? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'm just my first uh, job in the in the tracker market, and while I was sort of in the interview process, uh, I did a lot of research. And now that I'm at FCC, I I understand it way better. But I had initially thought, like, what is there? You know, just follow the sun. Everyone knows where the sun's going to be. How exciting could that be? And I was so wrong. Um, so a few things just to go over, like three that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, so in the old days, which was probably like two years ago, you would place the rows of trackers far apart enough that one would never shade the other, even when the sun was low in the sky in the morning or in the evening. And you just do the math to figure that out. But as, as I said, you know, the land and the interconnection are so valuable now and the cost of the equipment has come down so much that what um, solar developers are now doing is they want to put a few more rows on there. And so now the the tracker rows are closer together and what will happen in the early light of day or in the late light of the afternoon is one tracker will start to shade its neighbor and then the algorithm will understand that and then tilt it backtrack it's called backtrack a few degrees to optimize between the whole array you know optimizing pointing directly to where the sun is but then backtracking to get out of each other's shadows um, so that's one example, um, allows that backtracking to understand the shading that one array, one row is making on its neighbor allows us to put in more rows on a given piece of land and not worry as much about them shading each other. Um, and that same backtracking can now take into account if the land has a little bit of undulation or roll to it. So after the whole array has been installed with all the rows of trackers, you can fly a drone over with LIDAR and map the um, complete topology of the trackers. And then the tracking algorithm can understand that this row is slightly above grade of its neighbor and what that will do with the shading and the backtracking algorithm can take that into account. Um, so, uh, as, as I said, a lot of the perfectly flat land is just no longer available and solar is moving into new types of land that do have a little bit of undulation and grading is very expensive and also has negative aspects to it. So, um, these algorithms can understand that topology. And then the final one is we're moving into markets with diffuse light. 
um, like in Oregon or maybe in smoky skies in Colorado. So sometimes the sun isn't necessarily, you know, in a certain direction, but it's there's a haze or there's a, a fog or it's diffuse light. Um, and so the trackers can, it's now understood that the best way to get the most energy at that point is for them to lay flat straight toward the sky instead of trying to track where the sun is. Um, and so they can, the algorithms can now with sensors understand they're in a diffuse light situation and go into this facing straight up um, position to maximize the yield. So Catherine, let's get back to some of the other trends you talked about around this particular use case of trackers. The first one was lower costs, the second being um, ease of installation, and the third one, better algorithms, which you just explained. So my question is, do you think these trends are representative or more representative of the solar industry as a whole? And if so, what does that mean for entrepreneurs and potential opportunities that these trends could create? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it is really representative because if you look at solar, just PV uh, technology itself, it's still the same technology that's been around, you know, for decades. And that's true with trackers. Um, uh, trackers were not invented recently. And actually, if you think about energy storage, you know, lithium ion batteries um, are not a recent invention. But what's happening, if you look at PV, trackers, and storage, it's all the same story, which is just continuous improvement, continuous cost reduction, continuous improved efficiency and reliability, and um, all these small gains, these tiny cent, uh, few cents per watt or one or two degrees of efficiency gain over the decades, um, have brought uh, renewable energy and energy storage to cost competitive with fossil fuel uh, generation. And so trackers seem to be very similar and no different than solar and storage where it's these long um, understood and proven technologies that are just continuously um, reducing in cost and improving in efficiency. Um, and so one of the places I could see for uh, for entrepreneurs, I mean, FTC is a startup, which is pretty amazing. Um, there's some incumbents in the tracker market, but it's, it is an unconsolidated market. Uh, and FTC is a new entrant. It's about three years old. And the tracker, as I said, we sold this first Voyager tracker in 2019. But you know, that's a pretty challenging thing to do as a very experienced team, as I mentioned, and they, because of that experience and that track record, uh, were able to get the capital needed because it's very capital intensive. Um, so that's a pretty high bar for entrepreneurs. But there's a lot of ways I could imagine entrepreneurs supporting trackers in a form of like solar forecasting, like data services. So as I mentioned, um, you know, we can use sensors to determine um, what is the diffuse light, but we can also use like a satellite-driven solar forecast. Or, you know, what about the company that provided the LIDAR data 
to uh, help us understand the topology of the array as a whole. So these could be you know, third-party entrepreneurs. And another thing to think about, back to the tracker algorithms, what I'm seeing right now is the tracker companies are developing their own proprietary algorithms. But it's, it's a pretty tall order to be great at the structural engineering that's required uh, for these trackers to withstand wind loads and snow loads. Uh, also to be great at the supply chain, which is it's a very complex part product with many parts, and there's all different kinds of suppliers around the globe and tariffs and things to take into account, logistics, and then also to be great at software and the algorithms. So maybe there's a place for third-party software companies to come in and say, hey, you know, we don't want to build the tractors, but we can really do the math and the programming around the algorithms. And what I'm thinking about is what I've seen in energy storage. So if you look at um, companies like STEM, uh, which is a behind-the-meter energy storage company, you know, er, that's been around for over a decade, in the beginning, uh, you know, first portion of STEM's existence, they created the batteries themselves, right? They had the, um, they got the battery cells, they did the the um, power electronics, they put them in the enclosures, and, and now they've evolved to where they're a software company. And all they do, and this I've seen it not just them, but many storage companies are focused on the algorithms and the uh, artificial intelligence to know when to charge and discharge the battery, and then they leave the hardware as a commodity. And so there's been that separation of the hardware and the software. And I could imagine something like that happening um, I haven't seen it yet, but maybe that's an opportunity for entrepreneurs in trackers. Uh, so thank you for going in in depth uh, about about trackers here. That that's sort of one aspect uh, that through which we can see how things are changing in the in the solar industry. It's very it's very emblematic as a technology in that mm -hmm. sense. Um, but I, I want to shift to talk about another aspect uh, of changes in the solar industry, uh, which is the workforce. So you're on the board of Solar Austin, which has an initiative called the Equitable Clean Jobs Program. Can you tell us a bit about that and what the goal is? Yeah, we're really excited about that. Um, we It was originally funded by um, a grant from the city of Austin. And then we do have corporate sponsors, including actually FTC Solar is uh, our leading corporate sponsor at the moment. And uh, the, the grant that inspired us and allowed us to get started was um, a green jobs grant from the city of Austin looking for how can we uh, bring more diversity into our growing clean tech workforce in Austin. And we partnered with Houston Tillotson University, which is a historically black university in Austin, to uh, respond to this with a grant proposal for a, an internship program. Although, actually, uh, we've placed students from uh, many different schools, not, and including even high schools, not um, just uh, Houston Tillotson. So, so it was really challenging because when we started this program, it was pre-pandemic. And then suddenly everything went on Zoom and a lot of the employers, you know, the um, 
felt a budget crunch and stress. You know, we had some uh, attrition in our employers, but at the end of the day, I would say it was a huge success. We placed six students um, in internships over the summer with five different clean tech employers. Um, and they are wrapping up their summer internships uh, right now. And uh, actually tonight, um, which I think will be before this podcast comes out, but there's going to be um, a online celebration and we'll hear from the employers and the interns. But my understanding so far is it's been a great success on both sides. And what I've seen, especially on the employer side, is this project was already in the works um, going back to the fall of 2019, but in the spring, um, with the death of George Floyd and the real desire to improve the situation with racial injustice in America on on every in many people's parts, you know, a lot of these employers were so excited to um, be part of this program because here was something that's actionable, right? You're actually going to make a difference in the life of these interns. Um, you're going to get them um, their foot in the door, get their network um, started. You're going to give them real job experience and, um, you know, a resume builder as they launch their careers. And we're seeing um, so many uh, people want to be part of our industry because the work we're doing is critical, you know, to the health of the planet. It's mission-driven, and that's very uh, desirable. But uh, so often it's hard to get in. It's a high bar to get into our industry. And, and those of us in the industry, when we grow our teams and go to hire, we tend to, you know, think about who do I, who did I used to work with or who do I know, who am I linked in with. So we tend to just keep bringing in more people like ourselves. So this program helps us um, as an industry bridge that gap and helps us find um, new hires, interns uh, that help that diversify our workforce, that have great skills, um, but can bring a new perspective, and then also connects those students um, to the industry that they aspire to be in. I do want to talk more about the racial and economic inequities in clean tech and the clean energy workforce. But before doing that, I do just want to draw a through line, the first part of our conversation around the technology and innovation in the technology and the changing workforce. And I think that what that through line is, is we talk about the delineation of hardware and software with kind of these companies that have been in clean tech and clean energy they're starting to change their business models. And to change your business model, you need diverse perspectives that fuel innovative thinking. So by bringing in different types of people to be part of the new workforce, then these organizations are doing themselves a big service because they have fresh and diverse perspectives. So this changing workforce really does speak to the change of um, business models within the industry itself. Yeah, I would agree with that. And um, one of our big supporters in this program is Piper Maddox, which is a uh, recruiter in the renewable energy space. And they've been a very active participant um, 
in the uh, internship program, but what you said reminds me that in the beginning, they put together a fantastic presentation for the employee, the prospective employers that showed um, how just not just in clean tech, but across the board companies with more diversity and, and especially more diverse leadership uh, are more successful, have more successful bottom lines. And I think it comes down to exactly what you're saying, Aaron, is that when people come to solving problems from diverse backgrounds and diverse experiences, uh, they come up with more innovative solutions. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about, aside from just diversifying the workforce, is breaking down some of these racial and economic barriers in terms of access to clean energy. We know that you know low-income communities that are made up of Black and people of color have traditionally have had less access to clean energy and clean energy technology. So, Catherine, how do we make clean energy more equitable and provide access to those who are currently underserved? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's something that our industry um, continues to struggle with. I mean, especially if you think about distributed energy, uh, clean energy, or distributed solar, rooftop, residential solar, um, which I did work uh, earlier in my career in at SunPower. Um, you know, that whole market, especially in the beginning, but still to this day, was, you know, upper class uh, individuals. And in many ways, we needed that in the 90s. Uh, and in the 2000s, these were the early adopters that, um, and this was an expensive technology, but they wanted to demonstrate their values or they wanted energy independence. And we built the industry on those early adopters and were able to scale uh, production, which then brought down costs. But, you know, now we need to move on and bring in everybody. And it's a challenge because, you know, in, in distributed solar, at the end of the day, usually there's some kind of down payment and somebody needs to be able to write a big check and not everybody can do that. And so one of the things that's been really helpful has been solar loans, um, which have really taken off in, in distributed energy uh, recently. And that gives, you know, just like a car loan or something else like that, it makes it a lot more accessible for the middle class um, to uh, get rooftop solar when they don't have to, you know, write that big check for the whole system. Um, the other thing I would say, uh, you know, right now, of course, I'm working in utility scale solar, but there's a great um, ability of utility scale solar to bring clean energy to everybody, right? So it may not be on your roof, but for example, as, as Austin Energy or any utility gets more and more of its uh, generation from solar or, or wind for that matter, um, that's going to everybody that's a customer of that utility. So, and if you look at the, the price per watt, um, utility scale is much more, much cheaper than um, rooftop. So um, I think as we see utility scale solar take off, we should, uh, you know, understand that, that that clean energy is going to you know, all the customers of those utilities, um, and that is improving access to clean energy, even if it's, you know, sort of a little more abstract. Um, but as far as, you know, what, I, what I've seen is that we really need um, utilities and eventually, you know, states and the federal government to 
uh, play a role. Like, because left to its own devices, what's happening is, um, you know, the the benefits of clean energy are are not evenly distributed. And um, so I've seen at you know Austin Energy, where I, um, which is my community utility. Uh, in our community solar programs where we have built uh, community solar arrays that people can subscribe to, they have uh, added a carve-out to ensure that a certain percentage of that subscription is allocated to low- and middle-income customers in Austin, and especially ones that maybe live close to that where that array is located. Because, you know, the first community solar which was on the roof of Palmer Event Center, sold out immediately before it was even marketed because a certain class of people were tuned into it, they knew about it, and they wanted it. You know, people want to be part of that, and so it sold out. Um, but it was like the same old people, right, the same old upper class, uh, predominantly white people that um, were in the know and got access to that community solar. So I think that's a great idea is to have a carve-out for low, low and middle income and go market it to them. And another good example is in California. If you remember last summer, we had some uh, power supply uh, or public safety power shutdowns due to the fires and the danger. Um, and so PG&E was shutting down power. And what was happening was that was a huge burden on so many people. And what could happen is um, affluent people could get their home energy storage system and their home solar system and be able to microgrid and, you know, buy, you know, because they had the, the resources, they could can adapt. Um, and so what California has a um, incentive called SGIP, which is an incentive for um, rebates around energy storage and solar plus storage. And what California did is they took the lion's share of that uh, funding and they made equity and equity resilience um, requirements in order to get that funding. And so all the uh, vendors and suppliers and developers, you know, like these these um, equity rebates were so uh, lucrative that they would practically pay for the whole system, the whole solar, solar, solar plus storage system and resilient system. And so um, all the developers then started, you know, marketing to those communities that, that met the requirements for the equity um, rebates. And so I think that was a great move on this part of the state of California, similar to the, to the great move on the part of Austin Energy. And I'd like to see more of that coming from different states and eventually from the federal government uh, and maybe in a new administration if we really want to tackle climate change, we can tackle equity at the same time with programs that uh, support the industry at the same time as ensuring uh, it's, the benefits are getting to all Americans. I really like that term equity resilience. I haven't heard that before, or equity resiliency, because that is another key part to this, as you mentioned, affluent communities in times of disaster typically have access to those decentralized energy resources and they have more access to resiliency because of that, leaving low-income communities on kind of a lower tier of resiliency because they don't have distributed solar, distributed generation 
um, to kind of help out with keeping the lights on when the central grid is down. So uh, equity resiliency is a really great term. The solar industry isn't new, as you know we've talked about, but its time in the spotlight is quite new. And I think for that reason, now is the time for the industry to really define itself. What do you think should be some of the key components included in defining the solar industry? And how can those components be implemented now? Maybe equity resiliency is one and decarbonization is another one, but what are some of those key components? Yeah, I think um, solar is already, you know, uh, has a strong connotation in the public mind with decarbonization or environmentalism. And uh, I think that's fantastic and, and we should applaud that. But it does also have a connotation with, you know, um, upper middle class or privilege. Or, um, and so, you know, I remember at SunPower, you know, when we do marketing surveys to try to inform our message, you know, there were these, you know, you can consider them negative connotations where, well, solar, that's great, but that's not for me or it's not applicable to my life um, because that's for the elite, right? So I think that's something we really need to work on in our industry. And um, I think we can do that by working on equity and inclusivity in our workforce and in the benefits of solar energy, you know, as we've already discussed. Um, the other thing that uh, that's really exciting right now to think about as far as marketing and um, how we define ourselves is I think in the, you know, there was, and I hope this is already dying out, but a, a connotation of well, solar is tied to environmentalism or fighting climate change. Well, that's good, but there's also this connotation of like, well, we need to make sacrifices. There's deprivation. We're all going to give up things in order to, you know, do the right thing. It's a sacrifice. And I don't think it, uh, we need to re reframe that because solar is now very affordable and I, that's only going to continue. And so we need to look at this as affordable, abundant, clean energy, you know, that can power our lives and can power our dreams. And, you know, it's not about sacrifice. It's about abundance. It's about, um, you know, guilt-free uh, cold beers, you know, or whatever, you know, like you're like, let's, let's um, celebrate that we have harnessed this incredible limitless um, fuel source of sunlight and that our innovation has uh, brought the cost down to where uh, it's the lowest cost of uh, generation, you know, in most, in many, many markets. And, you know, back to that innovation, you know, we need to continue to foster a culture of innovation and, um, you know, have that as a defining factor of our industry. And, you know, I think it has been, and I think it will continue to be, but we need to, you know, that's what I would say is that inclusivity the innovation, and then the abundance. So how do we take all of these ideas about what we want the solar industry to look like going forward and actually implement these implement these changes? How do we go about making the solar industry um, look, look different in five years, 10 years? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, we talked about a few things. So we talked about the workforce. How do we diversify our workforce? And I think the 
Solar Austin Equitable Clean Energy Jobs Program is a, is a great example. I think internships um, are a great way to bring in new um, uh, people into our industry from different backgrounds, and we, and we need to be really intentional about doing that. And just about hiring in general, that intentionality. Um, and I was just having a discussion with um, the leadership at FTC Solar, and they were talking about uh, their uh, efforts to diversify our workforce um, and the need to be intentional because you're usually by the time you have an open rec and you're interviewing, you're desperately ready to bring that person on. You need that hire. And, you know, through our networks within days, we have a handful of applicants and a couple of them look really great. And it's so easy to just like, let's go hire Tom. He uh, used to work with Jay and we know he's a proven person. Like how easy and uh, is that? And that's how we keep ending up with a workforce that is predominantly white male. And so uh, what we're talking about at FTC Solar and what, what I recommend is that intentionality that says we're not going to make these hires until we've evaluated a diverse slate of candidates that, you know, you have to, to put a stake in the ground somewhere and say, okay, it's going to be, I'm at least going to require a diverse slate of candidates. And then once I've got that, then I'll evaluate and the best candidate can win. Um, but as our industry grows, we can look at bringing in new entrants into our industry from other industries like the military or maybe oil and gas, um, maybe other industries that have more diverse backgrounds because our industry needs people with every skill set, right? Project managers from other industries can, can join us. Marketers from other industries can join us. Salespeople from other industries can join us. So. Um, I think that intentionality around hiring and also bringing in those entry-level folks through internships is a way to diversify our workforce. And then, as as I mentioned before, you know, how do we make sure the benefits of, uh, of renewable energy go to everyone? I I would like to see, you know, more federal and state leadership and utility leadership on that front. I think it is going to take um, leadership at that level to um, help, you know, like in the biggest example I can think of, how do we bring renewable energy to places that don't have great renewable resources? You know, we need big transmission lines uh, to bring renewables to, let's say, Appalachia or, you know, um, cities that don't have a great solar resource or wind resource. You know, we need federal leadership to help us, you know, build big projects like that. Um, and then as far as innovation, you know, I, I, I'm pretty pr proud of where we're at right now. I think the status quo is, is really great. We have very intense competition in our industry um, with many, many um, suppliers and vendors competing. And we have a mission-driven workforce. And, I'm, you know, what I've seen in my career is that it's extremely innovative and um, I I don't think that there's an industry that's much more innovative than renewables right now. So um, I would say we're in really good shape on that front. Catherine, I agree with you. I think the um, innovative competition in the renewable space and the clean tech space is outstanding. At the current moment, you have, you know, data scientists and uh, other people from like 
other people with hard skills and computers and computer science are really interested in the renewable space. I think partly just because the problems that previously existed are so challenging and folks are interested in taking on those challenges and it's done really great things for solar and renewables. Yeah, I think, you know, just my own life story, I got in this industry very purposely looking for a purpose, right? I wanted to um, do more than just earn a paycheck and, you know, build my career. I wanted my the work I did to matter and to be meaningful. And I, I see that everywhere I go. And at Solar Austin events, um, there's always maybe a third of the attendees are not in our industry, but aspire to do so. And they're coming to our events to network or to educate themselves. So I think we're very, very attractive for because people want to have a purpose in their work and a purpose in their lives. And I think that does drive innovation. So Catherine, what would you say is the biggest uh, obstacle that the solar industry has placed on itself that, that, that is hindering progress, both in the ways we've talked about in regards to equity uh, of an access, you know, access to the to clean energy and jobs, but also um, from uh, being more being, you know, cheaper and more efficient and accessible, all, all sort of all the things we've talked about here. Yeah, a couple obstacles I've seen, um, you know, I feel like in the early days, um, we were as an industry, kind of shying away from um, the environmental purpose, you know, like that climate change was controversial or not settled or political. So let's just, it was just a race down um, to the bottom line, right? As far as, uh, you know, we would sort of not want to discuss too much, not want to look like a greeny thing, like we wanted to be um, uh, on our own financial economic merits. So in some ways, I think that's been great. That's driven the cost reductions. And, but at the same time, I think, you know, now is a time to celebrate that not all electrons are equal and that solar generated electrons are superior because um, they do not have carbon emissions. And I think we should, and I think the whole society has come around on that uh, front as well. And so I think that's a really good thing for solar that, um, you know, maybe it had to happen after we had reached uh, cost parity, and now we can go back and reclaim the fact that, yes, you know, this is the environmental choice, and, um, you know, let's let's go ahead and market that, and let's sell that, and let's talk about how, um, you know, not all electrons are the same, and, we, you know, people should pay, pay, be willing to pay a premium um, to uh, use energy that is... Uh, not destructive. Uh, so that was one I would say in the, in the not so much anymore, but in the earlier uh, part of the industry timeline, there was a real squeamishness about selling the green aspect, um, partially related to just the politics in America. Um, and then again, that intentionality around uh, growing our industry and, and bringing new people in, it's really hard to do, right? Everybody's just running as fast as they can and competing and needing, you know, often we're, we're putting together these new recs for new em employees at the last minute, you know, trying to keep our head count down. And so um, it's just so easy to pull in people through our networks and, you know, 
really challenge ourselves to be more intentional in thinking about how we grow. And I think, you know, if our workforce can reflect our population as a whole, the closer we get to that, um, you know, it's just better for the whole country, but it is also better for our industry from being more innovative, having more different perspectives at the table, but also having more uh, support across um, our population for policies that, that support the industry. Catherine, thank you for that. And thank you for being on and talking about uh, the future of the solar space in such a holistic way. Thank you. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Aaron, thanks for being on and uh, discussing what uh, how things may, may, will hopefully be getting better for the solar industry. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, you can find our research and media at zprime.com. You can find us on social media at dylockwood, at Aaron Hardick, at zprime underscore research. Uh, our virtual event, Energy Thought Summit 2020, is coming up real soon in September. Uh, for more information about that and lineups, you can go to ets20.co. That's ets20.co. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>